Um, we're going to turn to First Timothy um, chapter five, and um, so here's 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 just kind of the, the thought. All right, are you ready? Um, family matters and messes, because we know that um, kind of the theme. You know, he's, he's encouraging Timothy to be faithful, to be faithful to God, to be faithful to the family and the church, to be faithful. But one of the reasons why he wrote this, he tells us back over in chapter 3, verse 15, he's, he was wanting to come visit Timothy. You know, he trained him. He left him there. We know he's in Ephesus, and he's pastor in that church. And guess what? You know, this makes me feel a little better. But even some of these churches that Paul and some of those that Paul trained that started, you know, and some of these places Paul trained the leadership. You know, he led people to Christ. He discipled them. And in no time at all, he moved on. In no time at all, man, there are problems and there's stuff and there's, there's issues, right? Sounds a lot like people, doesn't it? It's everywhere and it's all the time. So we don't need to be surprised if we have issues, if we have different matters that come up and messes that have to be cleaned up. Oh, not you guys, right? No, no, all of us, yeah. We're that. It's, it's, it's that way in your, your own personal family, right? Uh, but the church is a family, see? And so he told him, so I hope to come see you. But he said, if I'm delayed, I said, I'm writing this so you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of, the, of truth. We are the visible representation of the gospel truth and, and of God in this world right now, okay? He says, I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the family, and that word, the house is household, it's in the family of God. It's a family issue. This is all family stuff, isn't it? And so here's the thing, that the language that he uses all through here applies to family. Once you're saved, you become part of the family of God, right? You're a child of the king. You're royalty, right? But see, the thing about it is, if he's your father, that means we're your brothers and sisters, like it or not. You know, and I said something a while back, uh, several years ago, one of our community services, I said, you guys know that there's only one real church in Hartville. And there were some people that really looked like, what? And I said, there's only one church here, and we meet in different buildings and locations all around this community. You see? Because the thing about it is, if I'm saved, and if you're saved, if you belong to Christ and I belong to Christ, guess what? We belong to each other. We, we're part of the family of God. And one of the things that the enemy done, has done has separated us and caused us to be divided. And sometimes we divide over things that really aren't that big of issues uh, and stuff like that so that we're not effective. We don't work together. Uh, and that's why this whole celebration of Unity Day is such a powerful thing that I know the enemy wants to stop it, right? I just love when you see the serving line today and you see people from all of our different churches working together and serving together side by side. It's a powerful witness to our whole community. But once you're saved, you're in the family of God. You're part of, he, he calls it his family. And, you know, Paul also refers to the, those who are, belong to the Lord as part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we're the body, right? That means we're all connected. To, he's the head, right? And we're all connected to him. We're all connected to each other. And we all have a function, okay? But everyone that you find in the New Testament who gets saved and becomes part of the family of God, the kingdom of God, connects to a local family of God, a local body of believers. We call it a local church. Everyone, you, you never find, you never find the whole uh, concept, there's never a concept in the New Testament about people who come to faith and, 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 and are saved and give their, their life to Christ and isolate themselves. They're always connected. So, and here's the thing, we're going to spend eternity in, in God's presence and in God's heaven, God, the new heavens, the new earth, all of that. Forever? And we need to, we need to learn to, to get it right here and now, don't we? 
and to serve him together. And so God wants us to connect in a local body of believers. But when we do that, even though we're saved, we still struggle with things. We're, we're, we're forgiven, uh, but we're not perfect. We're going to have problems. So like it or not, you're in a family. And we have family issues from time to time. Okay? Just like in your family, uh, if you're very close at all, you're going to have issues. The best, you know, that's the thing. I, all my family lives down in central Arkansas, and I've been up here all these years. I get along with everybody down there a lot better than probably I would if I lived right there on the farm like my brothers do. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, and I, can, I can go down there and enjoy everybody, and I can get out of there before they get sick of me, and I get on people's nerves, right? So anyway, but this is a problem that we have a lot. If we're going to be together. We're going to have people. We're going to have issues. We're going to have failures. We're going to have misunderstandings. We're just going to flat out have some problems and some conflicts and some controversy. All right? You believe it? Okay. It's just like we found out when um, we got a minivan when our kids were little, that as we got a little more space between them where they had a little trouble reaching each other, they got along better in the vehicle than they did whenever we had... You know, um, when we had to do that, because I can remember when we found out we were going to have number four, Gillian, uh, that we didn't have a spot for. I mean, we had three car seats in the back seat, me, Clarissa. There, there's, Lord God, there's not room for a fourth one. And, uh, but he helped us work out the deal a month or two before she was born. We were able to trade. and We got a minivan, and then we had room. Uh, but, but then we, we had to go to a Suburban there for a while, an old used Suburban that we were able to get them spaced out a little more, you know, because it bothered them to even, you know, like breathe each other's air. That was terrible. Uh, and sometimes we get to breathe in each other's air here too. So it can get downright messy, can it not? And we always say that ministry is one of the highest things, callings all of our lives to serve him in some way, however he chooses and gives us to do. But you know what? Ministry is messy, right? It's going to be messy. If you're going to be involved in it, you're going to, you're going to need to roll your sleeves up, not because you're going to get busy, but because you're going to get messy, if we don't want to have any messes, and we don't have any struggles or problems, then we just meet together and have club church and not do anything. But that won't live. That will die. That's not a New Testament church. Okay? So we need to accept the fact that it's going to be messy. And, and, and Timothy had to accept that. And Paul's helping him deal with family matters and messes in this chapter. All right? As we look at it, one of the first things that happens is he, he tells him, he says, do not rebuke. So there's going to be times when somebody's going to be like, you got to deal with them, right? So right there in verse 1, he says, uh, okay, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. So there's going to be times when there's going to be conflict, and you're going to have to confront. And sometimes you may be upset, and you really want to fly into them, okay? And so here's, the, here's my takeaway from that, is this, confront in love and humility. Okay, confront and love and humility. When he says rebuke not an elder, now that word there for elder, in this context, it means an older man. In other contexts, many times it referred to those who were in leadership. Okay, so he's talking about any of the older men. He says, do not rebuke, do not rebuke. Uh, uh, so the, the, the word there that's translated rebuke right here is a very harsh word in the original language. It literally means to strike at someone. And so he says, you know, this might be somebody, especially if it's an older guy, if it's an older woman, if it's a younger woman or 
or guy, whatever, you know, you don't rebuke them. Don't, don't go beat them up with your words. That's really what he's saying. But instead, he says exhort them or entreat them. Uh, and, and, and so that's a whole different word. You know, hey, Proverbs, did, didn't Solomon tell us in Proverbs 15, 1, that a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up all kinds of stuff? Yeah, they do. So here's what he's, he's saying. You know, you're going to have to confront it, Ty, but you need to do it in love and humility. In fact, he tells us in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 15, to, that we're to be speaking the truth. You're not loving somebody when you water it down and don't tell them the truth. But we're to speak the truth in love, okay? And um, if somebody's loving me, they're not going to have to say, now, I want to say this in love. If you're loving me, I'm going to kind of know whether you're loving me or not, right? See? So, uh, uh, but sometimes we've got to say some tough things, okay? So he's saying, but exhort them, entreat them. Uh, this is, a, this, you know, especially the older men, you want to you exhort them like you would a father, like you would your own father. You wanna, and the Bible says that we're to honor our moms and our dads, right? Our mothers and our fathers, we're to honor them. And so there's respect and there's humility built into this. So this word means literally to exhort. It means to encourage. It means to admonish. It means to appeal to them. It really describes someone, this word to exhort, I want to tell you, it means to come alongside and to help and encourage them. It's actually from the same root word, from a word that's used to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit, parakletos, that you come alongside to encourage and to help. And so you need to do this with love and humility uh, when it happens. So don't forget, this is a family issue. And that's why he goes on to say, you know, exhort them like fathers. Younger men, same thing stands. Don't rebuke, don't beat them up, but do it as brothers. Don't run over the younger guys, Timothy, like they're your peers and like, you know, I don't have to respect them and, and run right over them. Said so you need to treat them like you would your own brothers. The older women, now, no matter what they've said <laughs> uh, on the phone to Miss So-and-so, but, uh, or what they have done, you need to treat them with honor and respect like your own mother. It's very important. And dealing with the younger women requires even extra caution. You need to deal with them like you would your own sister and with all purity. You need to be very careful with the younger women of how you treat them and how you respect them and how you interact with them. You need to do it like you would if she were your own sister. So it's very important that when you confront and when you get involved in these things that you do it in love and humility because it just stands to reason these times are going to come. You're going to have conflict with them. They're going to have conflict with you. And whenever there needs to be something pointed out or there needs to be something corrected, this is how you need to do it. You're going to, need to, you're going to, you're going to use this, okay? So don't file it away. But this doesn't just apply to Timothy. It doesn't just apply to the pastor. It applies to the whole family, okay? So we got to take this into heart. All right. So then he moves from that issue that there's going to be one of the pro- one of the first problems. It's kind of interesting as you go through the book of Acts. One of the first problems that they had of people kind of getting bent out of shape and feeling neglected and feeling upset was the fact that as all believers had come together, there were a group of those who were alone and had no means of help and support. They were widows, and they felt like that that because they weren't like in from the area around Jerusalem, Judea, and they were from somewhere else, that they were kind of being overlooked. And it's in Acts chapter 6 where they appointed seven who had a very, uh, very uh, detailed 
qualifications of guys that they were looking for that the Lord would single out to serve in this. Many people believe that's kind of the beginning of an office that we call an office of service or deacon, that they were to help take care of these needs so the apostles could stay spending time in prayer and in the word and in ministering and in teaching and things like that. So it was the situation with widows that, that first brought up uh, one of the, the, the things where they had to organize themselves and have kind of like, I don't know, like a little business meeting type thing and figure out what we're going to do about this, okay? And so the next thing he talks about is that of those in need. And one of the most needy people in that culture and in that time were widows. So he says in verse 3, honor wi- widows who are really widows. I think the old King James says widows indeed, okay? So here's what we're going to talk about next is how to take care of those without being taken, okay? How to take care of those who can't take care of themselves but not get taken by those who could take care of themselves, right? I mean, we want to take care of people, but we want to get ripped off, all right? So this is part of what he's teaching here. So the, the plight of widows, as I said in that day and time, uh, was, was very difficult, uh, is a huge area of concern, that they really had no legal rights, they, they had no government support or public support of any kind, unless they had children or other family members that would take care of them, they had no means of financial support, and they were looked down upon, and like I said, legally, they didn't have much power or authority or anything in that culture and in that government, um, they would have to resort to begging, uh, they would perhaps resort to slavery if they were young. The horrible thing of prostitution many times uh, grabbed up a lot of them. So this is a very serious issue. This is something that happened. And uh, so he says this. He says to honor the widows who are truly widows. So honor, that word literally means to attach a high value to something. It can also indicate giving financial support and assistance to someone. And that's obvious because in, uh, in verse 4, uh, what he says about if, if there's other people who can help them, let them help them first before the church is burdened with them. So the thing was in verse 4, and he says that if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety or godliness at home and to repay their parents. For this, this pleases God. This is good and acceptable before God. So instead of the, the, the local body of believers being uh, burdened with taking care of her, that the first obligation is to her family, especially to her children if she has any. If she could have had children and the children have passed away, but she has grandchildren. It's actually, if they're part of the church, they need to know that God is saying, I'm counting on you to take care of those who took care of you. And in fact, he said, this pleases God. This is acceptable. This is pleasing to God. Now, I know that that word grandchild is, I think, in the old King James translated nephew, but it's a word that means a descendant, and I don't know how in the world they got nephew out of that. It's really talking about a descendant from them, Uh, but it could include nephews, it could include relatives, but direct line of children, grandchildren, that's really your first responsibility. He says, let them first, and that word first is a word that means priority. It is is a priority that you do this uh, to give back in support of those who've given to you already, pleases God. So it's in this context then that he says that, um, uh, that in verse 8, that if anyone doesn't provide for his own, see, it's in this context Not just a man taking care of his wife and kids, which it includes that, but it's even this where he says, if 
anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, he says that if you don't take care of your own, then you're acting and behaving worse than an unbeliever. You're acting like you have turned your back on everything that the Scripture teaches. Even heathen folk take care of their own, right? And says, you know, so think about that. He, he emphasizes it again down in verse 16. He says, if a believing man or woman has widows, it could include anyone else in need, I suppose, but he says, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows or those who are really in need, those who have nothing, those who have no other means of getting food and shelter and clothing and stuff like that. A key to understanding this course is verse 5 where he says, Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. If all she's living for is pleasure, she's never really going to find it and she's really like the walking dead. You know, that's the way, it's a general principle here. That's the way, not just her, but any people that are just living for pleasures, you're really not living, okay? You're not living until you die to self and let come alive unto Christ, amen? So Timothy knew that he was talking about that. And so it says he, uh, but verse 7, and these things command, and that they may be blameless. So we're kind of setting the, the understanding here. It seems that it was the practice of the church at this time was for widows who were a part of that local body, who had no means of support, or that they were supported and taken care of by the body of believers. And it also seems like that they in turn, are you following me on this? I'm doing a little teaching here, so don't, don't get bored now. This is good stuff. That they in turn would dedicate themselves to serving that local body of believers. And they would spend time in prayer and in supplication night and day that they in turn, they kind of had, they wasn't doing any other work or any other job and they were being supported. So they kind of served everybody in that local body of believers. Um, some scholars believe there were often teams of ministering widows in the early church that notice the qualifications laid out over these next verses are a little bit similar to those for deacons and, and elders and pastors and overseers. Because he says, let them be blameless. And then later on he says that they be, uh, in verse 9, he says, first of all, we're gonna, we're, the younger ones, they can work, they can get married. Other things. He says, so do not let a widow, in verse 9, under 60 years of old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been, listen to these qualifications, a wife of one man, well reported for good works, She's brought up children. She's managed her house well. She's, taken, she's been hospitable. She's lodged strangers because she's going to be helping minister and take care of people probably. She's washed the saints' feet. It's not just that lesson that Jesus gave us, that object lesson to teach about serving one another. She's actually doing it. Remember, they wore sandals everywhere they went. This was a job of a lot of times the lowest servant, but she has served other people, and she's, she's shown it. And if she has relieved the afflicted, and if she has diligently followed every good work. So listen to these qualifications. It sounds like they had an official number, an official list of those who qualified for this and that they, they had responsibilities in some area of service and leadership within those local bodies of, of believers. Um, so, but there's a separation between those who want to dedicate themselves to God as they're supported and taken care of and those who want to just... You know, have an easy, easy life. That's why he says in verse 6, but the ones who live in pleasure, they're dead while they live. Actually, the younger widows would be more vulnerable to this 
And that's why he said what he said in verse 9 about, they don't, you know, if they're under 60, they don't need to be taken into that number. Uh, because probably what's going to happen is, is that they're going to they're gonna decide they want to do something else. Uh, they're more vulnerable. Verse 9, verse 11, it says, but, these, but refuse younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. You know, they say, well, I'm just going to, you, know, you guys take care of me. I'm just going to serve the church. But after a little while, they get bored with that. And you know what? I want to find me a man, right, to take care of me. And so, you know, it says then uh, that, um, that, uh, that having, it says they'll desire to marry, having condemnation because they cast off their first faith or that pledge of what they said that they would do. Um, so some may have dedicated themselves to serve God. And the local body, they were supported by them. And then after a little while, they wanted to move on with their own lives. They turned back on the commitment they made, verse 12. So, but look at this in the context of Scripture. He's not saying that they couldn't remarry if they were widows. We know the law permits that. In fact, he said the younger ones here, he says, here's what I wish. He said, "Um, I wish that they would go ahead and get married. Look at verse 13. It says, besides, if they don't, they learn to be idle. They want, listen to this, they wander about from how, think they won't cost, see, they're supposed to be taken care of and they're supposed to be helping and supporting. But here's what Paul says, I've seen ends up happening. They're idle. What happens when you're idle? You begin to, you know, if you're not going to, if you're going to be idle and you're not going to serve the Lord and do the things you're supposed to do, the devil will come along and you should do things that you're not supposed to do. Okay? That's what happens. And uh, he says, I, I, yeah, I wish they would go ahead and remarry because here's what happens. They, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. Therefore, verse 14, I desire the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house. And, and you know, they're going to be the one in the home really kind of helping take care of business and keeping everybody straight and organized, right? Manage the house. Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And so really it would be best if you just got busy, you went ahead and married, had children, you're going to stay busy managing your households. So guess what? Even though the enemy tries to take advantage of you, you're just too busy doing what you're supposed to do to be available, right? So that's kind of what the, the, the advice was. So otherwise, they might turn away from their commitment to Christ, turn away from their commitment to the church, and they begin to cause all kinds of problems as they begin gossiping, they begin sticking their noses in other people's business, and, and some had caused so much trouble in doing these kinds of things that he says in verse 15 that some had even turned aside after Satan. They're even on the side of the adversary. Ouch. That's serious, isn't it? So that's it. If you're idle, the enemy loves to seize the opportunity to use you. And if you won't allow the Holy Spirit to work through you for the good, the enemy will work through you for the bad. And I'm not thinking of anybody, but I know I don't just say this, but a lot of pastors say this. Some of the people in the church who like to gripe and complain and find fault the most are the people who actually don't do anything. Oh, and there was silence. I'm saying, I'm not, I don't got anybody in mind. I'm just saying that. I know it's a lot of times when somebody wants to gripe about Sunday school, it's probably people who don't go to Sunday school. Somebody wants to, you know what I'm saying? A lot of times when you're idle, you just, you just have nothing else to do but find problems with everybody and everything. But one of the best solutions is to get yourself busy, right? See, my dad believed this because growing up on a dairy farm that um, us boys were close in age. Um, see, I had the problem, though, of being that middle child. 
Maybe that's why the Lord has given me so much grace and mercy because he know he placed me in such a difficult role, right? You know, I wasn't the oldest and got to boss anybody around. I wasn't the baby and got babied, right? I was just stuck right there, you know. I got my brother's hand-me-downs, and then by the time I got done with it, it wore out, and so my brother got new stuff, my younger brother got new stuff. And uh, I like to say that. That's not exactly true. We had cousins that handed stuff down, too. But anyway, um, and then I couldn't whoop my older brother because he's four years older than me. And if I picked on my younger brother, who's two and a half years younger than me, my older brother took up. They were in cahoots, I tell you. They were. And they knew that they could, they knew how to push my buttons because I had a really bad temper, and they knew how to, and, and, you know, they, they were, they, they did Believe me, I may have been the one that got the most whippings by far in the family, and mom and dad would testify to that. But but they also, in their wiser older years, have recognized the fact that the other brothers were doing stuff just as bad or worse. It's just that they were sneakier than me because they could push my buttons, and I had a bad temper, and all of a sudden I'd explode. You remember when your mom in the older days would be on the phone, and you know we even had an extra long cord, but see you were kind of tethered. Yeah, kids, you don't know exactly what even I'm talking about, do you? You were tethered to the phone. And you couldn't take that crazy thing with you everywhere you went so people could be bugging you. And it's not just phone calls, it's texts, it's messages, it's everything else, you know. And you didn't like my post and stuff like that. It's just, it's just, it's like bondage. But anyway, but mom would be tethered to the phone talking to someone. And then my brother knew the buttons to push. And all of a sudden, I'm coming after him. And I'm going to choke him, right? And, and he would go hide behind mom, you know, who's on the phone. And I'm trying to claw through my mom to get to my brother because I just, and then, so boy, I'm in big trouble then because not only did I do that, but she's on the phone, you know, and, and so she's talking to Penny, uh, and, and down the road and, and, and Penny's like, you need to just quit, take, get, you need to just hang up and whip that boy right now. And so that's probably what she do right there, you know, <laughs> So being in that being in that middle child spot was you know we have any middle children here today, Amen. God bless you. We see God. I see that hand. God bless you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did the uh, um um Doug? Did you and Pam both raise your hands and you married each other? Does that work out good? Yeah. You just feel sorry for each other. Okay. 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 Good. 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 I don't want to stir anything up here. I don't want to. I don't want to stir anything up here. But anyway, um, you know, so God has been so gracious uh, to me. And, and, but, but I don't I know. Anyway, so I got myself off track here. I'm sorry. But <laughs> anyway, but, but learning, learning, beginning to learn how to get along and how, how to communicate and how to, to work through these things is, is, is very, very, very important. So um, anyway, but uh, this whole thing of attaching high value and honor to someone and taking care of supporting. But we have family responsibilities and we all have our own responsibilities of how to behave and how to get along and how to encourage each other and how to help each other. But what I was going to say earlier is my dad had a real good solution for when us boys got to fussing and fighting. And usually it was because of something I did or said. It's just like, you guys aren't busy enough. And he put us to work. You know, and on a dairy farm, he had all kinds of stuff for us to do, right? You know, some of us, we don't have that for our kids. You know, you're going to go out and, 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 and pick up sticks or, or I don't know what. But there was always something he could, you know. And I can remember it would be like in the summertime, even if we were at the house and we just eating breakfast and we're getting into it. It's like, here's what he'd say. Poor dad's laying in the hospital recovering surgery right now. I'm not picking on him. I'm appreciating him, okay? He'd say, get your work clothes on, boys. Get your work clothes on. Anytime dad said that, it was never followed by anything that was any fun whatsoever. No fun. It's like Curtis says, work gets in the way of a lot of fun, doesn't it? It sure does. It sure does. So anyway, that would happen. If you got idle hands, idle time, you're just going to get in trouble. 
but we need to have wisdom of taking care of those who need to be taken care of without ourselves being burdened where we can't help those who really do need the help. And I think the devil tries to do that all the time as we've got just a real heart here in our church and our community to want to help people and want to encourage people. And the devil sees that. So we have to be wise and discerning because there's always going to be plenty of people who are always wanting to, to, um, to drain that and, 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 and take advantage of that uh, so that then they're not really helped uh, but yet then we don't have the resources to help those who really need it. Make sense? We need to pray for wisdom there, just like they did with the widows and situations, and the church needs to be ready to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Then the next thing, we'll title it this way. Max is out of town, but I knew he would appreciate this. What are we paying the preacher for? You've heard some people, we laugh about that, right? You can tell him. We laugh about that, but um, it's kind of, and we, we pick at each other around here about it. What are we paying the preacher for? But the truth is, is we laugh about it because we've actually heard that in our lifetime of people using that. And, and especially in these rural Bible Belt areas. Because I can remember, I can remember when I was a kid, when we, we just first had like, many of our pastors are bivocational. And some of these more rural churches, when they first got a pastor that was like full time, you know, and people were like, well, we're just paying him to sit around up there and just do nothing. And so, yeah. Anyway, uh, I can remember the pastor at a business meeting, and I was probably about 10 or 11, 12 years old, up pleading with the church about something that needed to be done, something to be to be done. And I honestly remember this old guy. I could call his name, but Lord help me, I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> he's with the Lord now, good man. He just was reflecting the thought pattern of his day. The preacher was going on trying to get people to help do this, and he did. He stood up. And in a very loud voice, he says, well, what in the world are we paying you for anyway? And the problem was, is looked around, and a lot of the old people, including my relatives, were like, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. What are we paying him for? You know, we're paying him to do all of our Bible study and all of our praying. We're paying him to do all of our witnessing. We're paying him to take care of this building, mow the yard, do all this stuff, yeah? Because we just, that's what, you know? Uh, so anyway, that kind of thing can come up, right? It can I, I never hear that around here, of course, but um, I know it can come up. We tease about it. But, uh, so here's what he says next, dealing with this kind of thing. Let the elders who rule well, okay, let me not pause there because that well is a key part of it, that rule well. They do a good job of what God's called them to do. Be counted du- worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and in teaching or in doctrine. Now, elder here is used to indicate those who are ministering and, and, and leading because he says elders who rule. Now, that word rule literally means to stand before. It means to preside. It means to lead. Double honor means not only respect for the call that they feel, but like the widows, to give them the support and the means so that they can dedicate themselves to serving full-time for the Lord. And by the way, I could go off on all kinds of things right here, couldn't I? You know, poor pastors, how, you know, uh, we never clock out. Never, never clock out. I mean, 2 o'clock in the morning, you got a bad enough problem. You go, I sometimes do turn my cell phone off at night because I still have a home phone. Just so you know, don't look at me like that. <laughs> Goodness. Um, but, but here's the thing is that I want to be here to be available. And I don't want to say anything that causes people to be hesitant if you need me. But here's what I do know is that um, there may be times 
that there'll be somebody that, that someone has just hurt your feelings and insulted you and you're so upset about it, you can't sleep at night and you might feel like you need to call me and ask for prayer or, or to, to complain about that person or something like that. And meanwhile, there's someone else that's just lost a job or they're, they're about to go through a divorce. They're going through something, you know, a hundred times heavier than what this person is, but this person thinks they're the only person in our church that has a problem, see? You know what I'm saying? And, and I really need to, you know, what I'm saying is that there's a lot of that goes on. Because you never, you know, if the pastor does his job right, you won't always know all the problems that other people sitting by you have, right? That's why I'm telling you that someday, like, if you kick me out of here brutally, I'm going to write the book. You know what I'm saying? I can write the book, you know. I've been here for most of my life for 30 years, and, and, and I can write, no. But the thing about it is, is that you never, you never have time. If you really care about your people, if you really love, like I love you, you never get to a point that you can, you know, you just need to get away and lay that aside. I can't lay you aside because I love you and I care about you, and I'm going to wonder how you're doing, and I'm going to worry about how things are going, and I'm, 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 I just can't, I can't get that burden off. Uh, you know, there's times I have to just, trust the Lord with it, but uh, it's there. And so he says they're worthy of double honor and take care of them. He even throws out a little Old Testament quote here in verse 18. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox. He just called all of us pastors oxes, evidently. But anyway, he says, don't muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Uh, so he uses two passages there. Uh, so in those days, they would take the wheat and they would lay it out and the ox that had helped work it, they would let them walk over it and it would crunch it and separate the grain from the stalk. And the rule was that God gave them in the Old Testament, it's in the law, not to muzzle the ox while he's doing that work, let him eat a little bit of it, okay? And then in, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul brings this up to the Corinthians because they'd been accusing Paul of all kinds of things. And Paul said, I have a right to your support. He said, I'm so glad that I worked myself crazy, me and Barnabas, so we didn't have to depend on you guys, or, you know, and others that do it, and others have wives. Are we the only ones that y'all picking on? He's kind of, but he's being honest, right? In 1 Corinthians 9, you go back. And he, he even quotes that there, and he says, was it for ox that he wrote that? Oxen aren't reading that. Well, hey, by the way, Farmer Bill, don't muzzle me. You know, oxen aren't reading that. He wrote it for us. And this is the application that he's, and he's applying it here, you know, as he's doing the work that, that it can support him and help him. So it is a biblical thing. It's a touchy thing. But that's why he's put it in here, right? That's why he put it in here. Because we need to have instruction on it. And then the other thing is, is that there's going to be strife. There's going to be accusations. There's going to be problems. And it's going to happen against one another. And many times it will be to those who are in leadership. And that's one of the favorite things the enemy likes to do. So you're going to have to deal with it. It's a given. It is going to happen. Right? And, and I will just say this, not just about myself, anyone. If you're a pastor and you're there a long time and no one has a bone to pick with you ever, something's probably weird about that. Okay? Yeah. I don't know what it would be, but, you know, if you do a bad job, somebody ought to have a bone to pick with you. Uh, if you're doing a real good job and the devil's not stirring up anybody to cause something, what's happening, right? Okay, anyway, uh, so he says this. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Um, and um, so you're going to have some kind of problem here. And you know what? I, I, I think that there, there, there's times that people like, I'm just being honest, okay? Can I be honest? Oh, please do. Thank you. Okay, I will. Um, there's times I think people like to have a bone to pick with the pastor or have a gripe about the pastor because they want to use that as their excuse of why they don't want to go to church. Right? I hear it time and time again. 
And uh, so they want to have that. Uh, the enemy wants you to have an excuse so you will withdraw yourself and isolate yourself so the enemy can work you down. All right? So you need to understand that part of the enemy's strategy is to get you to disconnect and use whatever. And I think sometimes pastors and leaders, especially you know, even in our local church, those who are in leadership and, and, and things like that have a bigger target on them. Uh, that's why, because the enemy knows if he can knock you down, there's going to be collateral damage. He said if there are complaints or accusations, and there will be, that's why he wrote it, that there need to be, they need to be received. You don't even receive it unless there's two or three witnesses, not just one person who's griping. Um, and, and, and so you need to make sure there's two or three witnesses that can verify this, and it's not just gossip, not just somebody saying something. I've noticed sometimes uh, through my years of, Petty complaints. Sometimes people, sometimes people get all bent out of shape about petty things rather than important things. And, and they try to make it sound bigger. Okay? It'll be like, kind of like, you know, well, some of us feel like, uh, or, or uh, you know what, several people have talked to me and said, and sometimes there may be some validity. I need to hear it. But I found that probably 85 to 9% of the time, the truth was no one talked to them. They brought it up and asked someone that they kind of thought might feel the way they do about it. And when they didn't disagree with them, they said, me and several people. And this actually happened to someone that I knew and loved back home. And, they, and I knew the church and I knew I'd preached there. I knew the pastor and I knew things were going on. And, and, and somehow or another they wanted to drag me and say, I was visiting with them. And they said, well, you know, me and a bunch of others at the church feel. I said, it's... A bunch of others, a bunch of others, I knew who it was. It was her and the woman she talks to on the phone all day, every day. It was those two. That was a whole bunch of people. And, and um, I, I loved and cared about this person very much. So I said, well, maybe you should just pray for him before you do anything there. Uh, and so, anyway, they didn't want to talk to me about it anymore. And so... Um, but then those who are sinning, those who have done something wrong, it needs to be taken care of. Two to three witnesses. You need to verify it. Then you need to confront. But the object with the confrontation is always restoration. Did you know that? And all of our, our stuff is restoration. Not to put someone down and keep them down, but it's to restore and to build up and to get everything on the right track. And so that's why he says in verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. Now, this is in the presence of all. If you understand how Jesus said that you go to them, if this is someone who does not listen. This is someone who refuses to, to uh, acknowledge, even with witnesses and with all of that. And then as you dealt with it, it finally gets to the point where the whole church has to deal with it and they're still resistant and they're still rebellious. Then you do get to rebuke them in front of everybody. You get to, you, yeah. That's what he says in front of everybody, that, 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 you know, the rest might learn something. See, and that's the thing with me. I always thought if the teacher would just whip the kid sitting next to me, I'd straighten up and be quiet, right? Right? But no, but we should learn when we see other people uh, that resist and that, 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 that 
just won't listen and, and move right through this kind of thing. Uh, so that's the object still, though, is restoration. And, um, and that's what he's really getting to there in verse 20. They may learn to fear. But everything's to be done in verse 21. He says, I charge you before God. That means this is big stuff. The Lord Jesus and the elect angels. And they're watching, don't forget, that you observe these things. All these things I've been teaching you about how you confront one another, how you take care of one another, how you deal with conflicts in one another. Uh, that you, He says that you do these things without prejudice, doing nothing uh, with partiality. You don't treat one person one way and someone else another way. Whether they're their social class or their family or whatever, you, it doesn't matter. Or whether they come from this background or that background, you don't do anything with partiality. You, you treat everybody the same. Very important. And so then he goes on to say, first part of verse 22, don't lay hands on anyone hastily. Now, he's talking about laying hands on him. He's not like laying hands on him like going to work them over. I'm going to lay hands on you. No, this was something that they did as they prayed. As they, why did they lay hands? It's not like I'm going to zip, zip, zap you with something. It's, it's a connection. It's showing it's a visible connection. And they did this to show they're identifying together. We're identifying together in prayer. We're uniting in prayer. And many times as they set people aside for specific ministries, in ordaining them for a God-ordained role, especially in things like you see it was with Paul and Silas, and you see these with others, as that they would do this, this showed that we are connecting with them. We are verifying that we feel God's call and God's commissioning on their life. And, and we're, we're agreeing together in that as they laid hands on them, as they prayed for them, as they set them aside for specific things. He says, don't do that hastily. You need to make sure that they're mature and that they're ready for it, uh, for the responsibility and the leadership and things like that. So that was the thing there. They may be all on fire right now, and boy, they're the one, and then all of a sudden, uh, they just, you know, they weren't ready for it, okay? So you want to do that. Now, then he says this. If you're going to take care of others, you've got to take care of yourself. I know. You need to say, preacher, sit down and let us get up and preach this to you. Because several of you have done it lately. And it's difficult. But that is thing that I realize is true. It's going to be hard for those who want to minister to others to minister to others if you're not taking care of yourself physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Okay. Now, I just need to get down to the altar right now, I think. Because this is sometimes a struggle for me. Because I think, oh, I can handle it. I can do this. I can do that. And then I get down and some of you are like, hey... And, and some of you have actually had to confront me uh, about some of these things uh, before. So take care of yourself. And one of the things he says here is in the last part of verse 22, nor share in other people's sins. I mean, you don't want to lay hands on someone who's not right and you become promoting them and they're doing wrong. But also, in other ways, keep yourself pure. Don't, don't let other people suck you into their sins. Okay? You need to take care about that. You can't control what others do, but you can control what you do and think, and you need to be disciplined to keep yourself pure. It's a constant battle, all right? Don't think you're over it. It's going to be constant. And then, verse 23, take care of your body. You've got to take care of yourself. Now, please understand, let's put this, that's the real takeaway from verse 23, all right? I'm going to read it. He says, do not lay hand. no, that's verse 22. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. And right there we'll say, boy, hallelujah, old Paul said, you know, instead of wine, I've got good old number seven, but you know, Cheers, Paul. That's good, you know. And then you become an alcoholic. You say, well, Paul said it was okay, right? So I'm saying sometimes we abuse that. 
But you have to understand some things about... And then, and then we have people who, you know, they say that Jesus came along and turned the water into wine, and then the Baptist came along and turned the wine into grape juice. <laughs> so anyway, you've got all of that, you know, because this could be like a big, you know, topic, right? But just make it simple. The big takeaway is take care of your body as well as your soul. Timothy's day, did you know it was difficult to find clean drinking water? Yeah, it was a real issue. E. coli, they didn't test for it. Believe that? Okay, it was everywhere. There were all, think about this with me. Let's go back thousands of years. There was no canning. There, was no, there were no freezers. I mean, there are places today there's not either. I mean, I never forget, we were down, uh, one of the first mission trips went to Mexico. Um, the, one of the missionaries we went with had gone, and, and one of the pastors uh, that was pastor of the church had gotten and, and here was their electricity. It was a cord run from somewhere else, and, and it was in their house, okay? And they had a light bulb, and then another cord. They, they got them a small little refrigerator. It wasn't a real big one, and that they could have, because they, they would get out and sell street tacos and things to raise money to, for the church. And so they were trying to tell them that you can keep meat a lot. Like they didn't have any refrigeration. You can keep meat in this. Now you have some electricity. You can keep meat in this for a long time. Well, they came back, uh, and, and while we were there, they were asking them, and, and I knew something was wrong, and, I, I, and he, he said, i got to explain what had just happened. He said, we brought this little refrigerator down here and, um, and told them that you could keep meat, and they could keep it a week in there or more or, or longer and stuff like that. And, and so I asked them, I just asked them how the re- refrigerator was working, how it was helping, and they acted funny about it. And I thought, I knew there was a problem. Maybe it wasn't working. Maybe they let meat spoil in there. So I took one of the guys aside, and I said, well, what's the problem? He says, well, the, uh, the bottom part of it works fine. But he said, when we put meat in the top part of it, it comes out as hard as a rock. And we can't use it. He had never seen frozen meat before and didn't know what had happened to it. It never freezes there. And it never snows, okay? So, so the thing about it is, is they had no means of freezing anything and preserving anything um, so, uh, like we do today. So it was impossible. You just tell me it was impossible to keep juice more than a couple of days without it spoiling, okay? It just was, all right? And they controlled the spoilage by boiling it down often into a concentrate, putting in these bags made out of animal skins, and they controlled the decay by fermentation it and, and, and so it's kind of like they did the same thing with milk by making cheese and, and and yogurt did you guys know i make my own yogurt yeah are you impressed okay well it's good stuff you know but that's that's why a lot of that developed is there was no other way to preserve these things and so it's a controlled decay all right is really what it is and so what they would do they would take this concentrate and they would mix it with their water which got the alcohol content honestly down to where it wasn't that much and it also had a purifying effect on the water now, it probably seems like that a lot of people knew how to juice this stuff up and just be, get drunk. And alcohol is a drug, just like a lot of things are. And there are a lot of people who are addicted, and there are all kinds of problems and all kinds of things that, that we, we see in ri- lives that are wrecked by it, okay? So Paul's not just saying here this is okay and everything. But here's, here's, uh, here, here's what he, he's, he's, uh, he's telling him. He says that probably Timothy was a teetotaler, that there were those that took certain vows even among the Jews, that they abstained from everything, and that Timothy may have been to the point like, I'm not going to have anything at all like this, and that probably he was drinking water, and it was causing often infirmities. And Paul said, for your stomach's sake, right? So he's telling him that you need to purify that water, mix a little wine with it, and, and do that because it's not going to be very good if you're sick all the time and you're weak and you're up in front of people trying to preach and you're saying, and 
excuse me, and you have to run off to the bathroom all the time. Okay? Right. Okay. Very uncomfortable here today. Yeah. But not nearly as uncomfortable as Timothy would be if he's trying to preach and he's got a giant colon cramp. Hey, there's no point going around being proud all the time. God can humble you anytime he wants to. Never mind. Okay, i got to wrap this up. <laughs> all right, so common sense for a common problem is what he's saying there. And then so let's just boil it down, okay, right, boil it down. Let's boil this down. Uh, and let's, let's keep some things in mind. Because he goes on to say, Some men's sins, verse 24, are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some follow later. Some sins of ev- are evident, some not so much. Some are evident because they've already reaped the harvest of judgment and condemnation because of them. It's like their judgment day, part of it preceded judgment day. And they may have found forgiveness, and you don't need to be prejudiced because you can see the effects, especially like the drug addict. Uh, or someone who's done this or that. Theirs has preceded them. But I want to tell you something else. There's other people sitting around you that look all goody-two-shoe and everything else, but they've got serious or more serious sins that you don't see. And what's going to happen is, it is going to be dealt with one day. Either they're going to get right with God, or they're going to have to answer before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what's going to happen. But he said on the same sense, some people's good works are clearly evident, And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. That is, that some of the ones that are serving and doing good, you see it and you know it, but Timothy, you need to realize that you don't see everything and know everything. And I want to tell you, in this congregation right here, a lot of the good work and the ministry of God that happens are happening from some of you that nobody really knows it and you don't get any credit. And there's sometimes people appreciate the pastor and the deacons and the leadership and the only reason is because you made us look good. But God says, I don't forget it. It's not going to be hidden. 